Let's open in prayer. Gracious Father, I thank you for the Advent season, uh, one of waiting, one of anticipating. Father, as we look at this text this morning, I, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe all that you do have for us. Father, we come together as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who long to see Christ glorified. And so I pray that you would indeed do that in our midst today. So Father, as we look at this text from so long ago, remind us, Father, of your faithfulness. Remind us that this faithfulness is not just a story in a book, but one of a faithful God who lives and still saves today. Father, um, hearing news this week of um, some in our, fam- our church family who are sick, I pray that you would be with them. Those who are hospitalized, Father, I pray that you would bring comfort to them. Father, I pray that uh, the sickness of our bodies would not overwhelm us or distract us from the glory uh, of Christ. I pray that the trappings of the season would not distract us from the glory of Christ. Presents that we have to buy or that we anticipate, look forward to, I pray that those would not distract us from the glory of Christ. And so, Father, I pray now that you would use our time together, both in the word and later as we partake of the table together, to remind us of your great and glorious Son, Jesus Christ, all that he has done to make us a people, to bring us uh, into relationship with you that we might be forgiven and reconciled. So, Father, now give us hearts that are attentive so that we might in, uh, our joy might be increased and Christ, your Son, might be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas is just eight days away, and uh, that means different things, I think, probably for different people. Um, for some, it might mean that there is a flurry of shopping still yet to be done or maybe to be started. Uh, I remember uh, shortly after I met Whitney's father that, she told, uh, that he told me that he did all of his Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve. Said, really? Said, oh yeah, the stores are empty. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're probably all in church. So, but he, he doesn't do that anymore. But uh, thinking about the flurry of Christmas and, and purchasing gifts, uh, sometimes it can be a, a very stressful time for us. And, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, we can give gifts for a lot of different reasons. They can be an expression of love, and so we want to give thought and care uh, to the gifts that we purchase. It can be out of a sense of obligation. So I just need to get one more thing for whether it's a coworker or a family member. And sometimes people even give to get something in return. Maybe it's a thanks, maybe it's a card, maybe it's another gift back, maybe it's to increase their reputation, maybe it's to be liked by the other person. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, or I'm sorry, the ancient culture in which we find the text, uh, it was common uh, to give gifts to the gods. And kings would often build temples for their gods so that they could get something in return. And so as we find the text, as we find David uh, sitting, talking with Nathan the prophet, that's in the background. 
And it's, it's not something that we're going to spend a whole lot of time doing. But it's interesting that the text doesn't really talk about David's motivation. But we know that it, it's somewhere in there. But David has a desire. He wants to honor the Lord for whatever reason. I'm guessing it's a good reason. Uh, but he wants to honor the Lord by building him a permanent home. But then the Lord uses the occasion to reveal himself in greater ways to David. That he indeed is a faithful and covenant-keeping God who loves and cares for his people. And so we pick up in chapter 7. You know, we, we, re- we preached through all of 1 Samuel. Now we're jumping into 7 here. Uh, but I, I hope it will serve us as we consider this Advent text. But the premise that we will see, I think, coming out of this text is that the Lord promises his people a forever kingdom ruled by his forever king. It's the Lord that promises his people a forever kingdom ruled by his forever king. And I've broken up the text into four different sections. And we'll kind of go through it. It's not really kind of a standard sermon in the sense that we're not going to have point A, point B, point C. But the first part we want to look at, I think, or that gets drawn out is the wisdom of man. Wisdom of man. And so what we, as we find David here, once again, um, the setting is that he's no longer in exile. He's no longer on the run from Saul. Uh, he's returned from the wilderness to the place of his home. Uh, and he has now been anointed king over Israel uh, by the elders. And we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. The city of Jerusalem, where he is now, which was the city of Zion, the city of David, has been conquered and a permanent home, a house of cedar has been constructed for him as a gift from the king of Tyre. Once again, we think about why did that king of Tyre build a house for David? It was probably to get something out of David, probably to bring peace. The ark had been brought back to Jerusalem and uh, the tent and set up in its tent The Lord had given rest from the surrounding enemies. And we get the sense that David reflects on all that the Lord has done. And he looks out and maybe even sees the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is or where the Ark of God is. And something seems strange. Something seems off. Why should he have a permanent home and the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's very presence, still be housed in a tent? So David, uh, David starts, he, he says, uh, as he's living uh, in his house, and the, the, verse, uh, verse 1 says, And now when the, the king lived uh, in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, verse 2 said, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. It's, just, it's a statement. But we understand the premise behind it. God has done a lot for David. And so I just can't help but think that David is thinking, how can I return the favor for God? God had promised David's forefather, Abraham, that he would multiply his offspring, that they would become a great nation. So David thought about it, maybe. He realized that that was true now. They were a great nation God had promised that he would give them the land of Canaan to possess. 
And there they were, living in the land of Canaan. Even after the people of God had been enslaved in Egypt, God had delivered them out of captivity uh, by his strong and mighty hand, and he had been present with them. Even after the people had rebelled against God in unbelief, God had never left them. Through their desert wanderings, for 40 years, he was present. God finally led them into the promised land. It took generations to conquer the land, but here David was, sitting in his house. And now God's people are no longer wandering in the desert. They, they were living in peace in a land that God had promised so long ago. As David looks out, he sees the ark residing in, in a tent, right? Literally a temporary shelter while David lived in comfort. And so he says to Nathan, he just makes the statement, right? He says, I dwell in this house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And, and Nathan responds to the king. He says, go and do that which is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. It's a reasonable idea. It makes sense why David would want to do that. And so Nathan gives his blessing. But as we will see actually in the next verse, in verse 5, it was not the Lord's will that this temple should be built by David. The Lord's answer to David, David's request is no. Well, it's not exactly no. It's just not yet. He doesn't tell David it's a bad idea or a foolish idea. In fact, he will actually eventually allow David to make many of the preparations for the temple himself. But I think what we see in these first three verses is the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man. And we see the limitation of the Lord's servants. David, the Lord's anointed king and a man after God's own heart and Nathan, a prophet of the Lord, both agreed on the wisdom of a plan. But that does not make it God's plan. As God's people, that should give us a bit of pause. It should give us pause and instill in us a sense of humility. Because have you ever found yourself so sure that you knew God's will and so much so that you railed against uh, others who don't, see to see, who don't see things the same way that you do. As one author wrote, he said, Our text testifies that the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands may be. Yahweh's finest servants are often deficient in properly discerning his will. And so this observation, right, of these three verses it should keep us from, from deifying our Christian heroes, from thinking that they're more than they really are. It should expose our own need, leading us to cry out for wisdom that we lack in our lives. And, and to, to plead uh, with the Lord to see beyond the way that seems right to us and to lay hold what is good and pleasing and perfect. as we will see in the text, that we can trust the wisdom of God, even if it seems different than what we think is wise. And so in doing that, we should not hold our own ideas so tightly, but, but hold them loosely and submit them to God's wisdom, always being subject to the Lord. See, the Lord had promised a forever kingdom to his people 
and he promised a forever king. And so now he then speaks to David. He responds to his request. Look at verse four, and we see here in this next section, the Lord's humility. So first we saw the wisdom of of man, and next we will see the Lord's humility. Verse four says that that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Right. His word to David is like, who are you? Verse 6 says, I have not lived, and the word there can be translated as, as dwelt or literally sat down in a house since the day I was brought up, uh, since I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all my people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I uh, commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar? So he, he raises these rhetorical questions. What's the Lord saying? He's saying he's not dwelt in, in a permanent house and he hasn't asked for a house. David, he didn't ask you for a house. And why? I think this is the remarkable thing, is that he's been content with this temporary nature of the tabernacle. He instructed the people uh, through Moses to build this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. Why? Because he had been with them, always, always with them. Wherever they went, the Lord was with them. When they wandered, he wandered with them. He, when they lived in tents, he lived in a tent. When they were a pilgrim people on their way to a land of promise, he was a pilgrim God, sharing the struggles of the journey along with them. He's a God who is with us. We begin to see the amazing humility of, of this covenant-keeping God, the God who will not enjoy rest until he gives rest to his people. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed to say that he's been traveling around in a tent with them. I mean, this is the same, uh, the same humility that we see reflected in the incarnation, right? Being born in a stable, uh, being, uh, living a life among people who despised him. So we see the Lord's humility and then he turns and points to his past grace, the Lord's past grace. Uh, the Lord continues. Uh, so that's our, our third section here. Um, so uh, the Lord's humility, and now we see the Lord's past grace. Starting in verse 8, the Lord continues his message to David by reminding him of that grace. He says in verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now this past summer, as we preach through the, the book of 1 Samuel, the narratives that are behind these words are probably familiar to most of us. But just by way of a brief reminder, right, that the people of God, what had they done? They had insisted uh, that God give them a king so that they could be like all the other nations. And the Lord had responded by giving them the kind of king that they asked for. They gave, he gave them Saul, 
But Saul was not a good king. He was anything but a good or helpful king. Ultimately, the Lord rejected Saul because of his sin and disobedience, his unbelief, and he anointed David to be king over God's people. David himself was a shepherd boy. He was literally in the field keeping watch over the sheep when the prophet Samuel came to find him and anoint him as king over his people. Then David's life, as I mentioned before, was anything but ideal. That that first part of his life Because in his jealousy, Saul had tried to kill David multiple times. Somehow he knew that David was God's anointed. And so he pursued him. David was forced to flee the country and was exiled until Saul's death. And throughout his time of exile, what we see in 1 Samuel is David's heart of prayer and faith growing. It's increasing. He's becoming more and more the man of God that uh, will one day be fully the king. And so this is what the Lord reminds David of. The Lord reminds David of the grace that he has shown to him. He said, I, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. So what do we see? We see, well, we see three things, right? The Lord is the one who's accomplished all of this for David. All of these things, I took you from the pasture. I made you king. I cut off your enemies. In other words, the Lord does not need anything from David. There's nothing David has that was not already given to him by God. We also see that the Lord has been with David wherever he went. David knew the presence and the help of the Lord, perhaps unlike anyone else at that time. In other words, the Lord didn't need a house to work or even to be present with David. And interesting, the third thing I think we see is that the Lord blessed David to be a blessing to his people. What did he say? I took you from the pasture. Why? That you should be prince over my people Israel. So notice that also that he doesn't say that that you would be king over Israel. He calls him prince. What is a prince? Prince is a son of the king, or or a prince is one that would serve under the authority and direction of the king. Because God's king was to rule under the authority of God himself, reflecting the humility of God and for the sake of God's people. That's what Adam was called to do, but he failed almost immediately. But this is what we see in the incarnation, isn't it? We see the son ruling and reigning under the authority of the Father, living his life under the authority always of the Father. Throughout this promise, we see foreshadows of Christ and his coming. But now we come to really to the heart of the promise that God makes to David. right? Because the Lord promises his people a forever kingdom ruled by his forever king. So the Lord shows his humility, his grace, and now we see the Lord's steadfast promise. His steadfast promise. Well, what we find then in the remainder of this passage is that God has taken David's desire to build a permanent house for the ark of the Lord, and he's flipped it on its head. David will not build a house of cedar, 
for the ark of the Lord. Instead, the Lord will build an everlasting house. And that word can be also translated as dynasty for David. And so as, as I read the, the remainder of these verses in our passage, I, I want you to pay attention to how often the Lord says, I will. So look at what he says he will do. Right? He says in, in verse, the second half of verse 9, he said, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forevermore. And so we have the covenant that God gave to David, the promise of an everlasting kingdom, of an everlasting dynasty. There's so much that can be said about this promise that the Lord made here with David and Lord willing, if we preach through 2 Samuel, we'll spend a lot more time talking about it. But for now, I just want to highlight just a few things that we see here, especially in light of Advent. The Lord promises to give David, we see a few things. We see four things. First, a name. He says, I'll give you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. And a place Right? Appoint, appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. He promises rest. Rest from all of your enemies and violent men will afflict you no more. And then a house or a dynasty that the Lord will make you a house with offspring and the throne of his kingdom shall be established forevermore. What we see in, in this promise is that the Lord is promising a forever king who will bring provision and rest to God's people. We think this is great. This is amazing. This sounds wonderful. But if you know your Old Testament history, we know that the Davidic kings were by and large miserable failures. Right? Instead of bringing peace, there became a history of oppression. And instead of rest and uh, peace in the land, God's people were eventually exiled. They were kicked out of the land, sent to Babylon. But God's promise was not defective. In fact, it's, it's built in here. In fact, that is the primary work of God's promise is that it is a promise that will endure any and all casualties that might threaten it. 
as God states the promise that he, seem, uh, that he seems to be staring down. Uh, as he states his promise, it's he's like he's staring down every adversary. But I mean, listen, so look at verses 12 to 13. We see what? That, that death cannot annul it. Right? In verses 12 and 13, we see that, that David may lie down in death, but, but God will raise up David's seed. As God promised Abraham's seed, uh, the land, so he promises David's seed, the kingship. And in verses 14 and 15, we see that sin cannot destroy it. Right? He will certainly chasten and punish uh, the Davidic kings who go astray, but that judgment will never go as far as to involve a total remover, removal of his covenant love. To quote uh, one author, Ralph Davis, he said, a God is going to be dealing with sinful kings, but he will not allow sin to have dominion over his dominion. Iniquity will not dissolve his covenant love. So, wow. And then finally in verse 16, we see that even time will not diminish his covenant. God's kingdom uh, plan through David's dynasty is, is simply unstoppable. Right? He'll overwhelm death and sin and time if need be to bring it about. And in fact, we know because of Christmas that he has. The years wore on and everything from foolish failures to blatant wickedness marked the, the reigns of Davidic kings. Israel is swept into exile and remains in subjugation to foreign powers. But a child, a Davidic child, is born. A son is given. And in him there is no sin. He trampled all over death and has begun his, life, his endless reign at the place of supreme power and authority over all the universe. See, the Lord promises his people a forever kingdom ruled by his forever king. So who are the beneficiaries other than God's people? He's done all of this for them. The Lord promises his people a forever kingdom ruled by his forever king. The promised one is Jesus. Even Jesus himself identifies with this designation. Revelation twenty-two sixteen, where we see a, a future a picture of Christ in his second coming. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. See, the promise that God made to David is fulfilled in Christ. God fulfills his promise of giving his people forever king by giving himself. He gives himself to his people. Jesus is the serpent crusher, right? At the cross, Jesus dealt a fatal blow to the tempter. He'll one day do away with Satan altogether. What does Jesus do? He made a great nation, right? By faith, we, as God's people, are part of that kingdom, that, that great nation. First Peter chapter 2 says that, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he is 
a victorious king. In fact, he's more than a victorious king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's been given the name above every other name. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus has fulfilled every aspect of this promise, all for the benefit of his people. And so in this promise that is given to David, this promise of an everlasting kingdom, of an everlasting dynasty, of a name, a sense of peace, and a sense of place, we see that fulfilled in Christ. And, And what does that do for us here today? Well, all the, all the promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And so I think this Christmas season, it's good for us to remember what God has promised and what he's done for us. I think so often we feel like we have to make a name for ourselves. I think about that perfect gift so that person will think much of me. And so whether it's the perfect gift or we give ourselves to our our grades or our job, we're just worried about our reputation. We don't need to make a name for ourselves because Christ is the name above every other name. And that that sense of place, right? I think so often uh, that's uh, that we want, uh, well, we often think of a kingdom as a home and our home. But I think it really is just we want to we find a place where we can be comfortable, a place where we belong. And that's what we find in Christ. In him, it's not land, right? It's a home in him. And the promise of an eternal home in heaven. And the rest that we have now We wish that we would have rest from conflict. We wish for rest from striving. We wish wish that we would have rest from from suffering and sorrow. I mean, we would long for rest from having to deal with other sinners, wouldn't we? That would be really nice. And that is the promise that one day he will deliver that. But the rest that we have is in knowing that our sins have been forgiven. One day we will have a forever home. And the legacy that, that, and so we we shouldn't spend our lives seeking that rest in any place other than in Christ. Even in church, we're not going to find that rest here. It's only in Christ. And we shouldn't find ourselves pursuing uh, a legacy. How will we be remembered once we're gone? Because there's no lasting city this side of heaven. And so it frees us from pursuing our name for ourselves It frees us from from feeling as though we have to find a sense of place as we're pilgrims here, this side of heaven. It frees us from feeling as though we're entitled to any any kind of rest apart from the rest that we find in Christ. Because our hope then is in heaven. And so we're reminded this Advent season that the greatest gift that we have is Christ himself. Not something that we've earned, not something we've been given not something we deserve, 
But God has given Christ, he's given himself because of his great love for us. And so as we consider the promises that were made, we can know that nothing can separate us from, those, from a God who has done so much over time, conquering death, conquering our own sin, that we might be reconciled to him. So this Christmas, let us come and adore Christ the Lord, the one who has laid down his life that we might be redeemed. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised your people a forever kingdom ruled by your forever king, and that's Jesus Christ. Pray that you would help us uh, to not trust in our own wisdom, to not trust in our, uh, the things of this world, but to trust in what you have done, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray even now that as we prepare ourselves to take communion, it will be with a reminder that all of this was planned before the very beginning. That even uh, at the garden, when sin was uh, first uncovered, you promised that you would send your son Jesus. In the promise that we see God making to David, you promised your son Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we receive communion, it would be uh, with hearts that are amazed at all that you have done for us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that you would give us hearts that are both grateful and uh, adoring of you. In Jesus' name we pray.